For April 13th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 615. His knife wasn't out enough. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your extended family members trapped together in a a picturesque, excellently art-directed, Victorian-looking manor house. Uh, And uh, we are here confined uh, until this ordeal is over. And by this ordeal, of course, I mean solving the murder that took place earlier this week. I'm Matt Rather. I am here and uh, with with my fellow podcasters. And and for a long time, there has been a hole at the center of our podcast. And our podcast is not whole, but it is whole tonight because we have joining us Ben Adams. Ben, welcome to the podcast. I do declare. (laughs) We have with us Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. What in the What in the darnation? (laughs) <laughs> and we have Mr. Mark Lee. We, we're doing Southern accents. Not this kind of Southern accent. No, not redneck Southern accent. Something more refined. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so... Uh, so- here, here's the deal. We we are still streaming a bunch of stuff uh, stuck at home as we are during the the social distancing and the quarantine and and so on and the the such as as uh, some wise person once said and um, we did, we are kind of continuing our resolution to not just do the latest thing on pop culture but to do things that interest us and we have for uh, a while wanted to do an episode on the film knives out which came out late last year late 2019 uh directed by ryan johnson and uh we just have not found the time yet and we are here to do it uh now and we're going to talk about uh knives out which is available not for free on streaming you have to rent it if you want to watch it but i personally endorse uh i personally endorse renting the film and i'll put an affiliate link in case you want to rent it from amazon and and uh, a couple couple pennies will flow our way um that like uh you know that this film is definitely worth the you know four or five bucks or whatever whatever you'll you'll pay to rent it so uh it's a whodunit so spoiler alert in full effect from this point on blanket spoilers for knives out uh all seasons all books so uh let me start with a question who was surprised was anyone surprised at any point in knives out well, I, you, it's interesting because you ask, uh, are you surprised regarding who done it? And the information that seems to get pulled into the gravity well of that question is, are you surprised by what happened? And I wouldn't necessarily say I was surprised by what happened or how it all worked out, but there were moments that surprised me that were usually performative or character moments or moments of production design. And Perhaps that's related to the statement of purpose that is at one point briefly given in the movie. It's it's not about uh, you know it's what it's not necessarily about the truth. It's about you know the 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 truth is not gray, but what you do once you have the truth is gray, right? And uh, and and that sort of felt similarly to this movie. It's not the story itself that's surprising, but it's what you do with the story that's what makes it surprising. So that's what I would say. I mean, the the moment I was most surprised was probably the moment where Chris Evans went full Avengers action sequence into slow motion near the end of the movie, kind of raising his arm in an imitation, you know, Johnny Unitas football pass uh, with with a knife in his hand and everything kicked into bullet time. Uh, that that was perhaps the time, the moment where I was most surprised per se. But I don't know, not not by too much of what what took place. So, what do you think, uh, Mark and Ben? Were you guys surprised at all? I mean, I'll give the obvious one, right? Which is, or maybe it's not so obvious. Here it is. It's that like the 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 the, the sequence of events of how Harlan, the mystery writer, how he dies, um, and to some extent how the, the his death is covered up, is introduced so early in the movie. Whereas, like, I think it's pretty typical in the whodunit type of story. You get all that at the very end. Um, so there's, like, kind of a, an interesting subversion of the genre, I think, which is at play here, which is like, oh, look, here's, I think this is your point, Pete. Like, here's the truth and what, here's what you do with it. Um, the audience is given the truth of, like, oh, uh, the nurse Marta actually, uh, well, 
in, in a way killed killed Harlan and the one that he knifed himself and then all this other crazy stuff happens to cover it up. Um, and that is one of many novel things that this, this movie does to kind of toy with their expectations in the genre. Um, do you think that was anyone else think that was surprising? Anything else that anyone else found surprising? That that was going to be my my answer as well. What I was particularly surprised about was that it turned out to be true. I was anticipating the sort of thing where the flashback where we saw of Marta, Marta's version of the story. I was anticipating that that would be turned out to be wrong in some way. And that um yeah that's uh that's exactly right. Like m- mysteries and m- mysteries are sort of governed by missing information, right? And sort of the uh, the art in writing a mystery story is in taking you for a ride without making you realize that you're being taken for a ride. And so the the like the climactic scene that that we get here um is when the sort of the detective who is the kind of stand in for the the writer like brings everyone together into the same room and kind of retells the story uh of what happens almost ritualistically like retells um the story and in so doing makes it you know uh, makes it all make sense fills in the the um fills in the information that's that's missing now you usually this would you say that would you say they fill in the hole in the center of the donut <laughs> well this is, so this is the interesting this is the interesting thing like a lot of times uh in the way that it's organized um in terms of literary technique or in terms of fil- film technique it's uh organized in terms of missing visual information like or in terms of tropes of seeing in sight i should say like there's uh there's a a great sherlock holmes story sherlock holmes is always asking if you see it if you see it you know like or like you look but you don't see or something like that like to to watson like you or you don't observe or whatever his uh uh particular particular word is and like in you know beware the speckled band um the the when the uh, spoiler alert when the snake slivers slithers down the bell cord to like um to you know d- bite someone with its poisonous venom uh he shines a flashlight on it puts light literal light on the issue and says do you see it do you see it do you see the the like the solution to the mystery in film it's often a case of a missing reverse shot so like you actually see a person get shot but there isn't a reverse shot to um there isn't a reverse shot to show you who who did it. Mildred Pierce is the one that comes to mind. I think there's been some some theoretical writing that I read about it once in like the missing reverse shot and like the retelling of the the story, um, which happens in a police station. Uh, is that like you turn around and see who does it like who who uh does the shooting and Mildred is sent out sent out of the police station out of the the um the domain of the male law under the protection of her husband his arms wrapped around her shoulders having formerly been a successful businesswoman and the last thing you see in Mildred Pierce is the the washerwomen cleaning the floors on the steps of the hall of of justice and the 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 message is that okay after world war ii uh women you may have had you know jobs while we were at war but we're back now and and we got it from here um which turned out great so like the the visual information is missing here there there isn't really it, it doesn't really work like that and it's more it's more kind of penetrating into the penetrating into kind of an inner sanctum. So I think the donut hole is actually really uh, an apt metaphor, right? Cause there's like, there's the house and within the house, there's like the downstairs and then there's the upstairs. And then there's like the further upstairs, the attic, which has like no windows and one door that is his, you know, private study where the thing, where the, the actual happens and kind of like getting getting inside like who's inside and who's outside seems to be more the kind of the governing um metaphorical system of of the film rather than uh you know rather than who sees and who uh who doesn't see and that that is like it's sort of 
it's operationalized in a lot of ways. One, like who is a member of the family to who is entitled, like the Tony Collette character who is an in-law, um, who like, is she really a member of the family? Uh, or the housekeeper who, or not housekeeper, the nurse, um, there's the housekeeper and the nurse, right? Like who are like the help, you know, but then, uh, the nurse inherits everything. And then like, you know, so that there's that. And then there's also like a, who sees things for what they are. There's like multiple kind of levels of misdirect with the switch vials or with the stage prop, uh, knife which is name checked earlier in the uh earlier in the film by by Christopher Christopher Plummer himself so like i i'd like to propose that it's a little more the the who done it is really kind of who you know who belongs and kind of what worthiness what worthiness um means under these circumstances did that resonate with anyone else or was it just me who kind of derived that from deduced that from watching this film <laughs> um i guess i i think yeah there's a there's a functional respect in which it's not who did the murder but who I, I, I also read a certain meta. There's a big meta element to this movie, and it's not necessarily who committed the murder, but who hired the detective, who brought in the detective and turned it into a murder mystery, which I can see also dovetailing nicely with this idea of like being in the mansion it is this is the sort of why are we all in the mansion doing this clue esque movie uh, that, that is happening as the big mystery of the movie. Uh, and that loops back to the final revelations of what actually was unknown and becomes known. But yeah, who is inside, who is outside? I think in that reading of it, it, it one of the great things about that reading is it really justifiably endows the grandmother with a lot of power because she is the one who stands on the inside and looks out, which is also the position of power that, that Marta finds herself in at the end of the movie. Everyone else is always either on the outside looking in or on the inside looking in. Uh, Everyone is either being myopic and kind of the knives all pointed inward, but who is the person who's on the inside looking out? Uh, and, uh, I, I, yeah, I guess what I would say is I'm talking myself into your interpretation because I like it. And the circle of knives with the chair then serves as a, uh, a sort of metonym, you know, sort of related symbol to the house where everything is pointing inward into mm. the center. Yeah. And whoever is in the center is kind of the countervailing force of pushing outward, which is rare. Most of the time it's all forced. Did you, inward. did you notice course, it was a donut? It was a donut hole. Did you notice that in the, cir- <laughs> the circle of knives? It was also, I'll do this once and, and never again, but I have to once it's the circle of knives. <laughs> okay. I'm done. All right. So so I was told that somebody needed to provide a plot summary for this movie in case you haven't seen it in a while or in case uh, you have not seen it and you don't plan on seeing it and you want to know what happens. So I've been mentally preparing to summarize the plot of this movie. Should I jump into it, boys? Is this a good time? Or you still want to do this? Because it's a well, little complicated. I have, I have asked you here to summarize <laughs> the plot of this movie. Pete, where were you when you were watching this movie? And what was it when, that you saw when you watched it? Well, we bought it off Google Play, and then we had a series of technical problems with our Apple TV. But no, no, no. Um, so, so here's what happens in Knives Out. The idea, and you guys can correct me, and I think this might lead into some further conversation, is that there is a wealthy mystery writer who writes many, many mystery novels kind of on a regular clockwork. He has a ton of money. He has a big mansion. He's played by Christopher Plummer. He will heretofore be referred to as Christopher Plummer, as will most of the actors be refer- characters referred to by their actors rather than by the characters' names. He, there are three family units under Christopher Plummer who are his kids. Each of them are entitled to money, but they're they they're really kind of broke in some way, right? And also, each of them has a secret. Each of them has some sort of scheme that's being played out, and a secret that's being played out in relationship to Christopher Plummer. And Christopher Plummer is a Bond villain level, uh, like play with people kind of guy. He relishes establishing these like elaborate plots and codes. Uh, he's obsessed with murder mysteries and mysteries in general. And so he's playing these sort of games with each of his each of his kids. And the three family units are 
And, and and this this is a movie where the factors the factors come out like it simplifies most of the characters in the movie have very little to do with the plot and and it really only boils down to being a couple of characters who matter um, in that way it's not the crispest and most kind of uh, textured who done it but it's not it's not really trying to be it's as we've mentioned it's a little atypical in that regard and we'll talk more about that but there is the family of. Uh, sort of self-made millionaires who got loans from their dad, right? There's there's a sort of ambitious people, uh, and that's Jamie Lee Curtis and Chris Evans, and their game for the most part is that the dad is, you know, John Johnson is cheating on Jamie Lee Curtis, and Christopher Plummer is relishing uh, having this information and and uh, trafficking it through a secret note. Um, there is the uh, Michael Shannon. Uh, plot, which is just basic, very simple. He is the he runs the publishing company and makes money from publishing the dad's books, but he is being fired, and that is something that is unknown at the very beginning of the movie, but becomes known relatively soon. And this also gives him something of a motive to potentially kill his dad. And then there are the freeloading liberals who are, uh, you know, the 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 goop esque, and then the uh, and then the the liberal college student who it is revealed they are embezzling, or at least the mom is embezzling a double allowance of tuition money to enrich herself and pamper herself in luxury goods. Uh, and since, that this is going to result. It's up. Since you mentioned the liberal politics of the last group, you should also mention the conservative politics of the middle group. In particular, oh, yeah, sure. the, the, the alt-right spawn yes, of Michael yes, Shannon. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's like the juniors, the right wing, and the left wing. Right? The juniors are like, we're just like our dad. The right wings are like, we're rich and it's the way it should be. Right? And, and like everyone else is trying to take us down. And then the uh, and then the liberals are like, you know, we, we really are out there to make the world a better place, but please give us all the money. Right? Like, uh, like, because we're entitled to it. And, and so this is all kind of window dressing for the actual plot, which is that Christopher Plummer <laughs> approaching death decides that the one thing he has not managed to do is sufficiently kind of screw over his kids or something, right? Like, like his kids are too comfortable. They're too pampered. He's not comfortable with what he's done for them as a father. And he decides to play one last grand game on all of them. And this is my own little piece of headcanon too, which is that everything that happens thereafter, I tend to think that Christopher Plummer is more in on it and planned more of it and thought of more of it than is generally let on in the movie. Um, but what he does is he summons only his eldest grandchild and tells only him that the entire family has been written out of the will and then sits back and waits to be assassinated. Right. And because uh, he knows that everybody's mad at him and, and thus follows an elaborate plot first by his grandson, Chris Evans, to switch his painkiller medicines so that he is misdosed and dies of an overdose of morphine. Uh, and then this plot is foiled by accident when the unknowing uh, South American nurse, played by Ana de Armas, switches the medicines back by accident. Uh, and and it is, although if not by accident, by feel, right? She, she, is, she actually gives him the correct medicine uh, and tells him that he's been overdosed with morphine, which sends him into this sort of mystery writing, like sort of like thrilling manic state where he comes up with an elaborate plot, which you could conceive of as a sort of counterplot to his grandson's attempt to assassinate him, where he has Ana de Armas do this whole host of elaborate things in order to cover up the fact that she has killed him. Um, and because she does not want him to be she, he does not want her to be blamed for it. And he wants her to inherit all the money. And so she does all of these things. Right. And and, uh, and she, you know, she leaves the house and she comes back and she she like fakes out the security cameras and she does a whole bunch of stuff to uh, to uh, push aside blame on herself. And then Christopher Plummer then cuts his own throat to make his death look more like a suicide. This is the central mysterious point in the movie, which is that at this point, Chris Evans, realizing that the death will be uh uh, termed a suicide, hires an elite uh, Kentuckian private detective to investigate the death so that it is not ruled a suicide, and so, or at the very least, so that the maid is found wrongful, liable for wrongful death against him, even if she didn't kill him on purpose, so that the inheritance doesn't go to her. And so like and then and then he's discovered by one of the other servants. And so he goes and attempts to kill and then successfully kills the other servants, but then also attempts to befriend Ana de Armas and persuade her to destroy the evidence 
that he, that she thinks proves that he she he overdosed that uh, Christopher Lumber overdosed, but in fact rather proves that he did not overdose. Uh, but of course, nobody knows how to read medical documents, which is one of the funny, like main, one of the funny, very essential uh, plot elements of this movie is like it is predicated on nobody understanding letters that they get from their doctor, right? like and not being able to read them. Um, and, but uh, but yes, it's um, Chris Evans works with her to attempt to kind of clear her conscience, uh, but in doing so is actually unbeknownst to her trying to get her to incriminate herself, not for criminal charges, but civil charges so that he can get the inheritance. And at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the detective played by Daniel Craig, who has been interviewing everybody and just hamming it up the whole time, figures all this out. And Chris Evans, uh, on tape confesses uh, to a bunch of evil deeds, uh, and which, because he thinks that, you know, the maid is, is, uh, is is dead and she she thinks the maid is alive and, and it turns out she's dead and now he's liable for a murder etc 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 um and and he then gets nipped and then anna de armas ends up with all the money and everybody else gets in, end up cast out uh like you know these, i mean there's a bunch of other things that are in the movie that are important such as anna de armas's character is incapable of lying without vomiting but when you actually pair the plot down <laughs> to what happens it doesn't matter too much Right. Like like and there's a bunch of things like that where the characters have qualities or there's relationships like the fact that one of the kids is an alt right Internet troll um, is 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 positioned as if it's going to be important, but is a red herring. And I guess that is characteristic of whodunits, that there are a lot of like uh, extraneous things that happen in the movie. Um, Although I guess in this one, since it's so much less about what happened and so much more about, uh, you know, who did it like not not who it's it's who done it, but with an emphasis on the who not on the done and not on the it, right? It's, it's like, if you were to rate the three, this is a who done it, not a who done it or a who done it. Um, so that's my summary of knives out all told. Um, and, and so, yes, Mark, co- correct me or, or, uh, elaborate or what did I miss out on or fail to fully, uh, express no, here on this? That, that was an excellent, excellent plot summary for a very convoluted, uh, very plotty, movie uh, and i want to use that kind of as a jumping off point it's like because especially like if you have not seen this movie and you just just digest all that and it's like what <laughs> like okay on, on one hand like that is like um it, it is uh, of a piece of the whodunit genre and there's like there's lots of twists um and it's it, it does um challenge the suspension of disbelief that like you know really all that kind of stuff happened and then and and that's how it all went down um, but I think that that is, and combined with other like outrageous elements, like the character uh, Marta, the nurse who cannot lie without throwing up, it all trends this idea that like this movie is like extremely heightened, uh, almost to the point of farce. Would you say? Um, I, I guess that, so. That's the question to the group. Like, is this like to the point of farce or even like parody of a whodunit? Um, and if so, like, what does that uh, what does that say for the broader creative project of the movie? Uh, it's very meta, yeah, because because it's like because he's a mystery writer. It feels a lot like Clue, the movie. Yeah, except yeah, yeah, that it's not like, except that the other that one of the sort of yearnings we had watching it was we wish that it was more like Clue, and that the individual side characters who also seemed sort of like parodies of characters from whodunit movies had more to do and were engaged in more nefarious acts, so that it all felt a little bit more madcap. But I can totally see it, you you getting that vibe off of it. So it does it does definitely verge on a degree of of kind of blown out exaggeration that gives it a real funny uh, tone, a really distinct kind of three quarters funny tone that is related to a farce of, of character, right? And of manners, because these are all rich people in a fancy house who all have huge foibles. And and that's a big part of what this kind of comedy is about. And yeah. one other uh, very like uh, um, uh, farcical thing about this, right, is what we've been alluding to a lot is that Daniel Craig, James freaking Bond himself, um, who we all know and love as that, takes on this outrageous Southern accent. Um, and you just like cannot help but like acknowledge the, the meta casting of that. It's like, you know, we expect Daniel Craig to be this one thing, but he's something totally separate. And I think that ties to the identity politics that we'll get into later, like that he's a Southerner. Um, but does not have the bear the racial animus that uh, the, the the New England white characters have. Um, but to the point of what we're talking about here, it's like, well, this is like uh, just kind of um, pulling the outside of the movie in a very intentional way that says like this is a meta project. This is like you know um, uh, expecting you to draw on your knowledge of fiction uh, and, and storytelling to fully appreciate this thing. Well, I think one of the parts of the movie that most puts the nose on that is his diet, his 
discussion, the other metaphor of the movie, which is discussion of the novels, novel Gravity's Rainbow. And he spe- Marta responds to him, I haven't read it. And he specifically says, well, neither have, neither have I. Nobody has. But I like the title. And then he explains, like, why Gravity's Rainbow is relevant to him. And he, he makes this interesting comparison between his method and the method of traditional uh, fictional detectives. He describes Harlan's detectives as truffle pigs, you know, kind of rooting after the truth. You know, kind of – and this is, I think, kind of the Sherlock Holmes tradition of kind of – pulling down clue after clue after clue, following where the trail leads, and then, boom, at the end, you you find the truffle, you find the truth. He says his method is he just kind of ambles around and waits for the answer to come to him. And it sounds like farce, and of course it is, but then it turns out that's exactly what his method was. And, and, and that, that was the, one of the other things that surprised me was the way they used the little blood spatter. So there's this part of the movie where you find out that uh, where the camera shows you that a drop of Har- of uh, Harlan's blood has gone onto Marta's shoe. And the whole movie, this is tension because you're waiting for someone to find this because you think it's going to end up with her getting in trouble. And then there's this reveal at the very end of the movie where uh, Daniel Craig says that he saw it right from the beginning, didn't know what it meant. So he's not a Sherlock Holmes where he can deduce... You know, from the piece of soil on your shoe, he can deduce that you must be like a longshoreman from Kent or something. But he just knows that it's important. And so he says that his whole strategy for solving the mystery was just following her around and waiting until the truth kind of reveals itself, uh, which which seems ridiculous, but it works out. And, and I think that is kind of the way that the whole movie works is that it it's taking this farce and making it seem ridiculous. But then the pieces all all fall together in the mystery. You know, it's it worth really it's worth it's it's worth saying that Gravity's Rainbow is actually a mystery book as well, uh, to to a certain extent. Like the the well, it's it's a lot of things, and and uh, like everyone else, I I have not read it, um, but I've I've uh, read parts of it, and uh, I've I've started it many many times, <laughs> and um, in so far as I've gotten into it, actually, one of the inciting things in Gravity's Rainbow is that uh, there is a sort of minor um you know uh minor sort of military functionary named tyrone slothrop um uh and and thomas pynchon is great with names uh, among other things he's great with names including in this uh uh, in in Gravity's Rainbow, a law firm that is called uh, like Solitieri, Poor, Nash, De Brutus, and Short. But the um, <laughs> this, this is pretty good, right? Wow. Um, but uh, the the kind of the inciting thing of the film is that um the the map the pinprick the the pins on a on a map map that Tyrone Slothrop makes of his sexual conquests during during the war while London during the blitz while London is being bombed um is uh, identical to the map of V2 rocket strikes uh that you know that ha- that if they're plotted after you know the Germans have sent rockets to to bomb London, um, and that like why how does he know in advance and happen to have a a sexual liaison uh, immediately before so like the gravity's rainbow it's it's actually kind of a funny inverse of the the gravity's rainbow because the character in gravity's rainbow is there before. The rocket hits before the the projectile uh, lands on Earth, and Daniel Craig uh, is talking about kind of doing the doing the same thing, like wandering to where it's going, to wandering to where it's it's going to be anyway. But that that is a uh, that is a long long digression. Um, but hey, if you've read Gravity's Rainbow, sound, sound off in the comments. Would would love to actually meet a, a real life person. Um, yeah, so, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you, you, I was going to change the topic, but it sounds like you are as well. So go for it. Well, no, no, no. I think Ben's point warrants a little bit more investigation. This idea, cause I, I had not thought about this too much while actually watching the movie, but it seems pretty important. What does it mean to suggest that if you just kind of walk around and watch and listen, the truth will become apparent and that this method of sussing out the truth is superior to investigating it 
in a, in a systematic and rational way. And uh, because I guess what if in the context of the movie, just to think through this a little bit, the investigators in investigating the truth discover a whole bunch of the and by investigators, I mean, the cops, the, the regular old police folk who are doing this, discover a bunch of the other plots and conditions that are leading that would potentially lead any of the kids to be responsible for the parents death and or their grandkids, for that matter. But. The Daniel Craig, by sitting back and waiting and kind of waiting for things to reveal themselves, reaches a point where he has the superior answer. And I can't help but think that that represents a certain amount of fantastical wishful thinking on the part of like uh, what I guess um, a certain sort of. To, I mean, again, I'm heavily biased in this movie, and maybe this will pivot us toward the next topic because it's a Ryan Johnson movie to think that he's trying to make a point and frustrate your normal expectation of what the movie would be about. And and in this sort of broader political narrative that we can get into, it is broad and deep. There's this notion that the traditional ways of investigating the truth, i.e. looking at empirical evidence, you know, coming up with with uh, like not not trusting your gut, per se. Right. Uh, trying to follow the rules. Right. In terms of being a kind of technocratic approach to problem solving is inferior to going into it and kind of allowing the narrative to wash over you until you feel which way is right. Uh, and and that this is a, a kind of if that's in, if that is one of the dimensions that this movie is is indulging in this idea that like, well, you know what it what it turns out that people who think they're smart and think they can figure things out through reason and an experiment and a measurement and and doing all this legwork, they're not as they're not as smart as people who just have a good head on their shoulders and just sit back and let all of society digest, because that's where you get to the truth of things. And that's and that's where you'll be sort of blessed with the with the final the final uh, resolution, not the final solution. God, no, the final the final uh, revelation. Right. To know everything that happened. Speaking of Gravity's oh. Rainbow and World and, and World War Two, is that exactly what Daniel Craig says that like the the projectile that's been launched is coming to coming down anyway? Or does he I, I took that that speech to be that he like got some kind of special knowledge of where or like he he examined not the clues but the sort of the forces that launched the projectile so that he could so that he could understand the the physics so that like his investigation is not just kind of a wait and see approach his investigation is sort of qualitatively different from looking at while everyone else is kind of looking at at clues on the ground is really on the ground like a truffle pig i guess his his eyes are on the heavens you know what i mean and he's like doing complicated physics in his head rather than uh rather than the kind of um ra- ra- you know rather than the kind of evidence gathering and deduction from first principles that other people are doing i'm not uh i'm not totally sure maybe i read too much too much into it at the time another a, a light bulb that just went off sorry i'll, I'll dump this in and i'll get get right off it uh, a light bulb that went off when you said that is that if Daniel Craig is investigating the person who hired him, that is one of the other ways that he might be tracking gravity's rainbow, right? The initial trajectory and and uh, velocity of the projectile is the person who brought him in. And if he can figure that out, then he might know where and why the projectile landed, which, again, can be seen as a cultural or economic critique. Sorry, Ben, I, I know I interrupted. I'll, I'll step aside. Um, no, no problem. No. And, and I think that is important. He he. He thinks the best way is just do the math, figure out where the projectile is going to come down, and then just wait for mm. it to come down. And, and one important thing is that we, he, he, there's this comment he makes about how knowing the answer isn't everything. It's also what you do with it. And I think that's really the project that's here because one key about this mystery that Chris – when he does the big parlor room scene and says, I figured it out. Here's what happened you know, it was Ransom, it was Chris Evans that did it, and here, here's all the bits of bits of information that I used to deduce the truth. Chris Evans explains, well, it doesn't matter if you know the truth, because I'm going to get away with it anyway, because all the evidence is burned up, and, you know, I've thrown up enough smoke in the path that there's no way you can prove I did any of this. The only reason they catch him at the end is because they've let this process play out. 
if if Benoit Blanc had been a more Holmesian character that just figures the truth out right from the beginning and confronted Ransom with the truth, they wouldn't be able to prove anything. It was only because this farce played out and spun to this conclusion, got to the end of the rainbow, waited for the projectile to come down, that we get this big reveal where they kind of trick Chris Evans into confessing where, on a recorded recorded device. Because otherwise he would have gotten away with it. There was no physical evidence that he did it. In fact, all the physical evidence points to it being uh, Marta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are all good interpretations. Um, uh, mine is, is not superior, but uh, goes in a different dec- direction. Like if we're talking about distinguishing um, – uh, going earlier in our uh, in our conversation on this topic of like you know rather than a straightforward narrative and deduction of facts and one thing leading to the other and then kind of like hanging back and and um, watching things unfold um, that the the meta aspect of that is that in this movie it is like very much just as much about atmosphere hanging out with the characters and in the setting as it is about the linear unveiling of facts and knowledge and things like that. And you can, I guess you could apply that as well to Ryan Johnson's last movie, the last Jedi, <laughs> which is, um, you know, confounds kind of like, you know, a, a, a linear straightforward reading of facts and, uh, the, the, the sprawling Skywalker saga and consequence and all these sorts of things and takes a, a, a different take, uh, has a different take on, on that and, um, confounds, the logical progression of of the saga, and so I, I do think that this movie is in dialogue with the Last Jedi. I mean, how could it not? Right after all the the blowback from that movie um, and how it confounded fans' expectations, like he's he, he can't help but to carry that in. It's there a little bit, I think. Like Luke Skywalker um, uh, not doing the lightsaber fight is like you know and like him kind of you know uh appearing out of nowhere is a little bit of a mystery that that carries over in, in, into the next movie it's the kind of thing where like a plot twist in an m night Shyamalan movie even if it's not really there because his name is associated with it the audience might bring in that expectation which might then shift their interpretation or expectations in turn for things that do happen in the movie so it's like even if even if he might not have intended it it could still be there if but it does seem more. It does seem intended, right? This this dialogue with uh, with whodunits and with other movies that are similar. Um, it's not just a trick of the light, I suppose. But yeah, totally, it makes a lot of sense. So so really, really, the movie is about how the force is in all of us, and we should <laughs> we don't we don't need like an aristocratic cast of like uh, warrior priests to uh, defend the galaxy from evil because like even the the you know lowliest uh, the lowliest uh, sort of boy living in Dickensian squalor can hold out his hand and the broom will leap into it uh, as yes. as it been yeah in in a so way how, yes. So- <laughs> So how will J.J. Abrams make Knives Out 2? Do you think think that'll be good? (laughs) Anna de Armas will put all the money into a giant bag full of gold coins, and she will drop it, and Chris Evans will come by and pick it back up and give it to the poor. (laughs) (laughs) And the poor will never be identified. (laughs) And then then she'll change her name to Thromby uh, at the, you know, at the the very end. So yeah, I mean one one of the things that's that's going on here is the the kind of the discourse of sort of wealth versus uh versus poverty, you know, the help um as as the people who who uh you know, provide service in the household are, are demeaningly deemed. Um there is I think a uh the the undocumented uh, status of Marta's mother becomes an issue uh, at the movie that is kind of the principal level lever that people use to try to extort various things uh, out of her. And um, in addition, the marked uh, Southern accent of Daniel Craig has to be, you know, considered in a movie that is very kind of the, the, the setting seems very new Englandy. And in fact, I guess it was, it was filmed uh, around Boston. Um, and his uh, his sort of southernness um, and his his uh, you know uh, outsized French name is definitely you know at at play here. It, is the is the kind of the social 
comment straightforward? Is it just that the you know the the rich people are are bad and and greedy, are rapacious, and don't have good hearts, and uh, you know are just bad? And uh, and Marta is good because of her her poverty and her uh, her status as an immigrant. I asked an intentionally stupid question so someone could say no, Matt. Who's going to do it first? I'm giving you guys every ample opportunity before I rant on <laughs> well, this movie the, for 15 solid well, minutes. I'll, so. <laughs> I'll jump in with the, the obvious counterexample, which is arguably the most selfless person in this movie is not Marta, who is very kind hearted. Don't get me wrong, but it's Harlan who ends his own life in an extraordinarily painful fashion Purely because his nurse, who at the time, remember, he believes made him mistake, made a mistake, has has killed him. Like that's that's the world he's living in in the last few minutes of his life is that he believes that his his nurse has made a fatal mistake. You know, but he is so selfless and so that he hatches this elaborate plot to ensure that she doesn't get caught for it, and then ensures that his own death is vastly more painful than it would be otherwise. Uh, so, you know, we at least have one character who's extraordinarily wealthy and yet is nonetheless very selfless, uh, yeah, though he is, as yeah. Pete pointed out earlier, he is cruel in many, many other ways. I mean, if, he, if he's assuming he's hopped up on morphine, then, uh, like, how, you know, how much does he really believe it's going to hurt? Turns out the joke's on sure. him. Am I right, guys? Well, here's the my, my part of my question is, do you think he flipped the table on purpose? Do you think he knew? Because he figured out that the that the Narcan or whatever was missing. Right. He, he seemed to not be surprised that the overdose medicine was gone. And, and, and he's the one who flipped the table. I don't know. I, that, I'm going too deep on this. It's not really supported by the text, but I can't help but think that Christopher Plummer is playing Harlan as if Harlan has figured out when uh, when he flips the table that the medicines have been switched in some way by his grandson and like the game's afoot. Right. And it's time for him to kind of make his play. Um, But that's probably too much. Yeah, I think you might be uh, overthinking it, Pete. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, So let me spool out a little bit of the racial metaphor and then I'll hand it up back up to you, Pete, to to problematize it. Right. Okay. so fine. Yes. Christopher Plummer is the altruistic, you know, quote unquote, good, white, rich, white person (laughs) in this movie. He does the right thing. Um, Well, at the very end, at least he does. Um, But he's left this trail of wreckage of all these like horrible and selfish, uh, spoiled white people who exhibit varying degrees of racism towards the Latino woman, Marta. Right. And that ranges from. The soft racism of like, oh, you know, like you, you did things the right low, way. Low, right? Expect, you know? low expectations. Is that the soft big? Never mind. The only reason this movie didn't contain the line, I'd have voted for Obama twice if I could, is because that line was already used by another movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's that, that get out aspect of it, right? Which is like, you know, they, they think that they're doing the right thing, but in reality, they're, uh, you know, they exhibit all of the causes and symptoms of, uh, you know, systemic racism in society, um, you know, from the people who think they're doing the right thing down to the, the, the alt-right, you know, straight up racist troll, uh, in the bathroom. Um, so, and then uh, op- opposing that then is good hearted Marta, the immigrant, the hardworking immigrant, um, who is just trying to do the right thing. And there, I think like is one of the problems with this movie is like, she is such a saint, um, that she is so good-hearted, it's like, well, you know, in order to triumph and 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 be come out ahead in this uh, racist society is to be perfect uh, and exceptional in that way. And um, I don't know if that's that the movie. I don't think intends to send that message, but it is there, um, and that probably is one of uh, several other problematic things. Pete, what do you think? Oh yeah, sure. So, so my big take on this movie in terms of the uh, the sort of heart and soul of it is probably best expressed in a contrast with Parasite. Uh, so because Parasite in this movie came out at roughly the same time, this is kind of the Dante's peak to Parasite's Korean volcano, right? Where it's like they're, they're sort of about the same thing in that they are presentationalist allegorical stories about very specific political and social hierarchical relationships involving like the inheritance of the the wealth of the upper class who don't deserve it right and what should happen right um 
And the biggest the biggest surface level difference that I think informs the the mission difference uh, sort of as you dig into it between Parasite and Knives Out and and like very light spoilers for Parasite. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, but in Parasite, you have a family that's torn apart by ostensibly right uh, capitalism and communism and North and South Korea and all of these like metaphors around the Korean people really tragically feeling that they are not taking care of each other anymore. Right. And they should be that they should be more focused on taking care of each other. And this is represented by the family and the family in Parasite. The movie ends with the family dreaming the son dreams and maybe it happens or maybe it's just a dream of a day when he and his father can embrace again and the family can be reunited right and so the sort of ultimate defeat of the of the evil richness right is the is the ultimate reunification of the family and the end of knives out is a a sort of uh voyeuristic and kind of uh you know fanatical uh you know wish for the destruction of the family where the the sort of infiltrator has been made the queen of the castle right the social order has been turned upside down and everybody in the family that we don't like has been cast out on the street right and and it's like this is this is justice right this is what's right is that this person who is you know and, and this is a group of people right who they refer they never refer to each other as family more than like when they feel their own position is threatened Right. They don't really care about being family. And and Harlan doesn't care about any of them. The fact that he would put them through this is uh, proof enough that he has no sense of responsibility for for them as their for them as their father. Right. Um, and their grandfather or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, sure. Maybe he's not in it for for enriching his own legacy. But like his his cruelty and his sort of his, the, the relish with which he tells Chris Evans that his entire the entire family is being disinherited. Right. Like the knives are out because they all hate each other and the house. Right. Like so. So the sort of the, the sort of, um you know, the sort of house as country metaphor in Knives Out is that Anna de Armas has been invited into the house. She has come to the house is the United States of America. Right. <laughs> and uh, and its economic activity. Right. And and uh, and Anna. Right. Uh, Marta has been invited into the house uh, to do work, to do menial work. Uh, and and she is willing to do this because she needs money <laughs> and she is a worker. So she comes into the house and she gets work for money and she meets all of these crazy people who are within the house and have built this grand myth making around what the house represents for them and their own sense of entitlement to the house and the wealth that the house generates. And throughout the sort of every day, the sort of ordinary time, she is an also ran, you know, I don't get to drink. I'm on the job. I don't get to really participate. But once she has something they want, they're all like, we invited you in. We were so nice to you. We're the real family. Right. And, and and they start performing this notion that they're a family with each other. But the whole rest of the time, they were nothing but jerks. And and so this is I think this made me think this movie made me think a lot about something that Matt says a lot. Right. Which is uh, that other countries oh, no. fantasize about being American and Americans fantasize about their own annihilation. Right. Like uh, and uh, and that Knives Out is an American disaster movie that in which like white Americans wish for their own own annihilation and the and the justice is like the beautiful perfect person of color who is going to be put in charge of everything elevated you know by the white people making the right decisions and then that she is then going to return the favor by building this benevolent society which of course they will get to participate in and be wealthy and prosperous again right it's this it's this similar to frozen 2 this kind of have your cake and eat too (laughs) it's a lot like frozen 2 right it's the castle it's like the white white people have to be willing to sacrifice the castle but they do so in the full faith that the people of color will continue to let them live in it and nothing will change right like and uh and and it's it's this uh it's this but but i think the big take i mean yeah there's same sort of central hypocrisy right of like being aware of the injustice is sort of the same as solving it or like but anyway they there's that little monologue where, where daniel craig says to her like you know i know what i would do to these people but i think i know what you're like and you're going to decide differently and the notion is that she's going to be kind to them because she's kind Right. And this kindness is part of her non-whiteness because the white people are all jerks <laughs> and uh, um, even up to it, including Daniel Craig to an extent. Um, but but that's the idea is that like there is not here. The, here's the problem. That's the you don't just get to throw out everybody. 
right? Like, like if you're trying to create a parable about how society is supposed to move forward, you can't just say like, well, it's going to move forward, but, but society won't be in it anymore. It'll be different. (laughs) 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 I I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a fantasia. It's not, it's not meant as a like coherent program of social change, but like, (laughs) you know, it's a representative space for a certain, for a certain kind of fantasy. Uh, and it, you know, it might seem particularly trenchant, you know, in, in a world where, uh, <laughs> given, given like, uh, massive destruction, uh, d- massive destruction of, you know, shareholder value, right? <laughs> of our, of our inheritance, a lot of people are on CNBC talking about how we're all in this together and we're the real family. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say is that this is how companies get free labor out of their employees is by saying, well, we're, we're, re- we're this startup, we're really like a family. Yep. And, and that works right up until the moment that the, the loan gets called and the layoffs start. And then not so much with the family. This is, you know, some bizarre thing where it turns out that like the junior level employee actually owns the company. And then it's put to a test how much. You know, how much was the company really a family to begin with? Right, right, right. And I guess I'm, I'm complaining a little bit about this fact, but it's I think it's a it's a it's a you're you both are right in that it is, it's certainly accurate. It, there's a correspondence to reality in that this is, I think, how a lot of people do feel about the United States. Right. Like the idea that it generates all this wealth. And when the wealth is in trouble, then we're all on the same side. But when the wealth's not in trouble. Right. Like then we are just all in it for ourselves. Um, it certainly bears, it certainly, I don't know. I felt in the connection or the contrast between this movie and, and, uh, Parasite, some of the, some of the critique Mark had been offering about like collectivist and, uh, collectivist kind of familial traditions and kind of the lack of the relative lack of individuality in Eastern cultures versus American culture. And that this is a movie about, this is a very individualistic movie in that there's never really a point where any two people in this movie make a decision together, right? Like they, they all kind of like they all kind of are in it for themselves, and it's all games and manipulations and tricks and pressure and and influence. Although I guess my favorite moment might have been when the college student who is supposedly studying you know social justice and social change uh, is 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 teaching and an Aramis being like we're a family, but we're his actual family, <laughs> right? Which being like you know look I've learned all the theory about how you and I really have a common cause, but like. You know, this is my grandpa we're talking about, and it's my money. <laughs> like, it's, so, it's, so it's sort of a uh, there's a, there's a lot of conflicting, hypocritical ideas that are inconsistent with each other, but nonetheless bear a correspondence to the experience of those ideas in reality. I think, <laughs> and maybe that's why people like this movie so much because it does ring true here's in a, that respect. Here's another digression in my in my great series of digressions that uh, I guess you know comprise my participation in this podcast. Has anyone seen <laughs> fail? Has anyone seen fail safe? I really was hoping you were going to say failure to launch. Has anyone, seen, has anyone read? Has anyone read the coddling of the American mind? Okay, because um, failsafe is great. Yeah. So, so failsafe. I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and do it in like 15 seconds. Failsafe is is a film where a Cold War movie against where uh, against all odds a nuclear bomber is sent to Russia with irrevocable orders to bomb moscow right and this is supposed to it's a kind of uh, a terrible fantasy about like what could happen in the cold war and this is supposed to this is why it's called failsafe this is supposed to kind of never happen um but the the just sort of the thing that you have to accept is that there's this plane and in three hours it's going to drop a, a nuke on on moscow so um everyone is trying to stop the plane and when towards the very end, they do all kinds of things and the very, the, the people on the bomber are very true to their training. Like they actually do very well in that they are, you know, instructed that, you know, the Russians will get wind and try to psychologically manipulate them and people impersonating the voices of their families will make emotional appeals to them. And, uh, you know, and they, the Americans go get their actual families to make emotional 
appeals to them. And that like, it's, um, you know, they resist this as they are trained to do. So, okay. So it's going, it's going to happen. So they call up the Russians and are like, okay, look, best case scenario. Now, a nuclear bomb gets dropped and we don't start world war three, like best case scenario. Now, tens of millions dead, don't start World War III. And what they offer is, okay, you can send a bomber here, and at the same time that uh, we're dropping a nuke on Moscow, you can nuke, you know, New York or something. And So it, it, it's, it's subtly different. In, oh, is in, it? Okay. Maybe, I don't know. No, 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 good. The, Thank you. The, the offer is from the Americans to the Russians is we will bomb New York ourselves. Oh, got it. Oh right. So there's an Amer- so there's an American bomber that then when the when the bomb goes off over Moscow the Americans then have to bomb New York because the Russians can't be seen as being weak and so it has to be a one for one but of course the Americans don't want the Russians to launch a bunch of planes. Yeah. So the Americans offer to bomb our own city. And the other thing, you know, so and then the other thing is that you can't um that you probably couldn't get a plane from Russia in time, right? So okay. So and then in the in the dialogue, there's a great moment where it's like, well, okay, if you really do that, I guess, like, we believe you. Like, if you're willing to commit to doing that, I guess we believe you that you're not actually trying to start World War III at, uh, at a great advantage. Um, and the, the American negotiator, probably the president, right, says, unless just our willingness to do it would be enough for you <laughs> and, the, and the you know uh and you know the 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 russian guy is like reagan please right like it's uh you know does not it is not having it and i think the i think the line of dialogue is what would your answer be if the situation was reversed and he's like yeah okay we got it and it's like uh, the the it it occurred to me because it's the opposite of this of this notion of like just having the noble thought you know is enough whether it's whether it's you know elsa and like just being willing to destroy arendelle to flood arendelle is enough or whether it's the you know the the liberal arts um liberal arts education uh, granddaughter who's like, you know, well, yeah, but I, I, yeah, I understand, understand all the theory. I've read Slavoj Žižek. And, and by the way, it's Slavoj Žižek who says that, that uh, other nations dream of, of being America and America dreams of a, of a devastation. So, uh, so total that its own privilege would be annihilated. Um, I just, quote him a lot saying saying that thing like i've read slavoj zizek like i you know i'm i'm down with uh i'm down with the the struggle of the proletariat but just doesn't you know doesn't have anything um you know does when the rubber meets the road it did it, it doesn't amount to anything in terms of actually being being willing to kind of make it, make any sort of personal sacrifice um so I, I think there's actually a, a gender lens to read this through that, like, one of the most notable things about this family is a missing matriarch, right? It's like a patriarch without without a matriarch. And the, the sort of the fact that the mother, the great-grandmother, is sort of rendered mute strikes me uh, in a way I can't fully articulate yet as being... Uh, being a little bit important and that like um, you know the fact that there isn't I don't know the fact that there that there isn't a mother you know one it sort of places us in the realm of kind of fairy tales Um, and two it it there's sort of no moderating there's no sort of moderating influence on the personality of the father right there's no like other parent who can um 
uh, uh, you know what I mean? Who is who is there to kind of hold down a different? Who's there to hold down a different point of view? Like you know, mm-hmm. presumably you get in families where like where there are two parents, there can be two uh, uh, two points of view, and that That's, like yeah. What you're saying is that there's a bunch of pointy knives, and there's just a hole in the middle. <laughs> there's a <laughs> it's called dicks out. I mean knives out. It's not called hole in the middle. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know. <laughs> wow, that is like that is that is that that I can't believe that that didn't occur to me while I was watching the movie. <laughs> that like that the absence is like the yoni, right? Like and that the presence is the phallus, and that the issue is that you have a whole. It's basically just a big old circle jerk. It's just all phallus all the way around. But, and well, then yeah. the very end, the the climax is of course a fake knife that yes. doesn't doesn't penetrate it, it right. just bounces off harmlessly <laughs> mm. yeah i mean i mean whoa who hasn't been there am i right <laughs> up top brothers i mean it is it is that is also problematic i mean if we want to talk i mean of course it's problematic it's a it's a whodunit it's nothing but problems but <laughs> but but the, the, one of the things that's problematic about it is that it's a movie in which all of the bad people, right, all the people who are bad are the ones with their knives out. And as you're pointing out, Matt, there is a real kind of perverse uh, kind of ungenerative masculine energy to all of them. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis has the really short cropped hair, right? Like there's this sense that the femininity of uh, of the of the blonde mom is like is like feigned or fake. Right. Her sort of fake naturalism. But everybody's so hostile and nobody is nurturing and nobody is caring. So it's very stereotypically masculine versus feminine in that respect, which is even if we necessarily like embrace the gender binary as something that we support, we can all recognize when it's being symbolized. Right. And yet at the end, what is the ultimate what is the sort of ultimate failure of Chris of uh, Chris Evans, but being unable to keep it up like a real man? Right. Like, (laughs) Right. Is that his his knife isn't out enough. Is the sort of ironic contrapasso that he suffers at the end. So in that respect, it's a movie that kind of both attempts to cut its cake and have it too. Um, <laughs> what the what its cake needed to, I guess. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, the the um uh one of the reasons I think I suspect Pete why you are troubled with a persistent sense that Christopher Plummer planned the whole thing is that he planted the seed about by saying this character you know these people don't know the difference between a real um yes. these people that are a real knife and a stage prop or something like that right and it turns out the last one turns out to be uh turns out to be a, a stage prop and like there's no one yeah there's no one to sort of mar- to to moderate his gamesmanship and I, I i tried to make the point without necessarily committing to like the essentialist you know gender binaries or or things like this but it's it's really it's a system it's a representative system it's a symbolic system you know that we're that that I'm I'm talking about and his you know w- with with his pen and all the cigars all the the sort of smoking I mean smoking is is smoking cuts a couple of ways right like because um the you know the the cigarette or the cigar is a is a long sticky up thing but also uh the kind of the the oral aspect of 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 smoking like in Freudian terms conveys like neediness conveys like regression and childishness and all the, all the like Jimmy Lee Curtis smoking is like dependent, you know, um, the, the hidden joints in the, the hidden joints in the clock, right? Like, um, or Daniel day, uh, Daniel day Lewis, uh, who is not, who is so good in this movie by not being in it. Daniel Craig, <laughs> Daniel Craig, I've abandoned my child. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis is brilliant as Christopher Plummer, as Daniel Plainview as uh, Christopher Plummer. Um, Daniel Craig smoking on the, you know, smoking on the the like the foot long cigars, the like the uh, the like the ballpark Frank sized cigars that he, uh, you know, that he sucks down over the course of a couple of couple of scenes in um, in the movie. 
Uh, the, fun, the other uh, yeah. reason that I thought that Plummer uh, planned it all is that I watched season one of Westworld, and I now assume that all stories end that way, right? <laughs> Ford planned it all, all of it. It's the mastermind. It's impossible. Um, no, yeah, knives out for Haram. Dicks out for Harambe. I mean, knives out for Harambe. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, yeah, it's uh, it was it's wonderful that they're all revealed to be robots in the end, and at least yes. they don't they don't escape the park and uh you know start to um at at least the movie doesn't drag on to a third season long past uh the point of the thing that made it good to begin with (laughs) well uh i i hope we have filled in the hole at the center of this podcast thank you very much for listening and thanks very much to ben to pete and to mark for podcasting um with with uh, me here as we uh, as we continue our our quarantine streaming uh, extravaganza. So uh, let us know how you're doing. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think of of Knives Out if you saw the film. I'd also love to just hear how the listeners of this podcast are uh, doing. Um, send an email to podcast at overthinkingit.com or a voice memo or something like that. Who knows? We could put together a, a little sound collage of our listeners or something. We hope you're well. We hope you're healthy and safe. We hope you and and your family are taking care of each other, unlike Christopher Plummer's family in Knives Out. And we uh, look forward to bringing the show back to you next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve <laughs> You know, it just occurs to me that this movie is, in a way, a sequel to The Sound of Music, where Christopher Plummer has a loving family around him, and then uh, many years later, they all turn against him. Oh my god, there's there there's no mother, because the mother is Julie Andrews, and she's not around. Oh god. They should have called, they got a nanny from the, uh, from the convent. That would have solved the problem. <laughs> Only if it was Mary Poppins. It's all connected. Ford played it all. So I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Failure to Launch, but in it, Matthew McConaughey plays a 35-year-old man who lives with his parents. That's where the similarities end. I think. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>